ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It is the biggest comeback of the year. We're talking about ransomware. Yes, this week on Download This Show, new research shows that victims of hacking attacks in the last year paid out an eye-wateringly large amount of money to the cybercriminals. So why are we doing that? Also on the show, Google's AI Bard has been rebranded as Gemini. And why Meta, the company behind Instagram and Facebook, are about to start labelling all artificial intelligence images across their social media services. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download the Show. And a very big welcome to our guest this week, the co-founder of Patient Note, Sarah Moran. Welcome back. Thank you so much. And creative technologist at Leonardo AI, Jesse Hughes. Welcome back. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. All right. First up on the show, should we pay for ransomware? Now, you would assume the answer to that is an easy no, but it turns out a lot of us and organisations are paying for ransomware. So cyber criminals stepped up their global operations last year. Apparently, there was a bit of a lull in 2022 when just a mere a half a billion dollars was paid out uh, to criminal gangs for, for um, cybercrime. It's gone well over a billion now, which means more companies are paying out to criminals. The question is why? It's interesting. So when we think of ransomware, we often think of it from an individual experience, right? So you're thinking being scammed and someone's going to hold your personal data hostage. But the targets are moving. So uh, last year, it did double the amount of, of money that had been you know, hacked, stolen, scammed uh, through ransomware. And the gangs are now targeting things like hospitals and schools, as well as major corporations. So the, the it's called big game hunting. So they're going for the big end of town. Um, and I think that's really increasing their revenue quite significantly. So hackers are really looking at how do we get the biggest bang for our buck? And they're, they're going for it. And so is the logic of it then, Jesse, that because they're going for the, the big game targets, that they have the money, they're likely to pay because they have it? Is that, is that the logic of it? I think it's the level of risk involved. What we're talking about with some of these breaches, like these are hospitals. Like it, it's quite literally life or death as to whether, yeah, whether we're going to pay or not. There was a really, really big case in like 2021 where uh, this attack was on a, like an oil pipeline in the States. It's called the Colonial Pipeline. And it's like, if you have a threat to like computerized equipment that manages an oil pipeline, the level of threat, it's just such a high risk. Like how much can you hold someone kind of at ransom? Like quite literally, I mean, in in this example, they ended up paying the ransom. And the other thing to note with this is they usually request a cryptocurrencies because obviously it's anonymous and all that kind of stuff. And so in this particular case, when they try, when they tried to get the money back, the crypto had lost value. And so they didn't end up being able to get the same worth and that kind of thing. So that's the whole point of a ransom. There is how much threat can you have? There was that one with, do you remember years ago? It was like Ashley Madison. It was like this extra marital affairs mm. website. Anyway, and they took, they took hold of all the user data and they said that unless they they shut down the website, they were going to release the names of all the people who would like, you know, engage in this extramarital kind of thing. And so that, again, is like pretty heavy information that they're having. So when we apply it to stuff like hospitals and pipelines, yeah, I think you are really at the mercy of yes, who has the most power in the situation, really. 
I think um, you touched a bit on it there. You know, the Ashley Madison case is a, is a good example where it's also the brand risk. So there is the mm. literal life or death things, but mm. the the reputation of a brand, it, w- it wouldn't surprise me that after seeing the uh, fallout from some of the ransomware attacks that have happened over the last little while, people have seen don't be that guy, you know, yeah. don't, don't be that company that as these groups mature in their practices, they also can ask for more money because there's there's evidence to say if you don't, you'll be that next case study in, in uh, university as to what not to do. At risk of stating the obvious, if organisations do start to set a trend of paying out, does that not ultimately lead it to becoming a worse situation where there's the, the prices and the ransoms get bigger and bigger and bigger because they know people will pay, Jesse? I mean, you're dealing with people who are doing incredibly nefarious things. So it is that um, exchange of, is it worth it? You've got no guarantee that they're going to come through on their word. If we're dealing with something like Medibank having, you know, the release, releasing of private data, like, like that's a massive brand impact, like you were saying, Sarah. So look, you're, you're trusting people who are holding you ransom. Like, where, where is that appropriate to put trust in? I'm not too sure. Um, I think for me, it just reiterates the absolute critical nature of cybersecurity in this current day and age. You, why are you not encrypting your files? You know, like it, it needs, you need to be ensuring that your data is stored in the most safe format it can be. That if you are having, you know, your files backed up somewhere and that they're secure, that they are, you know, stored securely. I, I think you make an interesting point. A lot of these companies, it's not necessarily their own technology that's flawed, but technology of third-party providers. So these gangs operate by finding flaws in certain types of technology and then looking at who's using that technology. So they can repeat their plays over and over. So if you find something open in one technology, you then have a market of people who are using that tech that you can then apply that ransomware play to. And so there's two parts to that. One is that, you know, yes, yes, it will be more expensive and more people will be targeted. But on the other hand, there's a bigger impetus for people to then actually solve the problems of that third party security. So what I'd love to see is an increase in white hack hacking, which is this idea that someone puts a bounty on on any issues. So if I Mm. have something wrong with my tech, please tell me and I will get (laughs) in and fix it. But if I don't know, you know, it's the ransomware people who are likely to get my money. So you can sort of set up a system whereby these hacks are solved if it's essentially a two-sided marketplace. Then the real cynic in me says, well, eventually this will just become a line item in someone's budget and <laughs> you budget each year. How much are we going to be paying for our cybersecurity threats? I'm yeah. sorry. That's just that's just my thinking. I love that. <laughs> we also have like the, the, you have the sophisticated stuff that you're talking about and you also have the most simple things like with the, pi- the colonial pipeline ransom thing. Like that was an employee personal password that got found on the deep web. Like I don't think we as the everyday, you know, back end users really understand the weight of giving our password or our email address or something like that away. And that's like a kind of like easy access to a system. So yeah, cybersecurity, (laughs) (laughs) pretty important. (laughs) You should be the ambassador they wheel out when they get you to do cybersecurity training in your organisation. Like here, go through this course, but here's Jesse on the side with a big thumbs up. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Sarah Moran, the co-founder of Patient Notes and creative technologist at Leonardo AI, Jesse Hughes. Mark Fennell is my name and another day, another AI story. (laughs) 
Um, Google up until recently have had a, a generative AI, so similar to things like ChatGPT, and it was known as Bard because somebody's a big fan of Shakespeare, I'm guessing. But as of today, well, rather this week, when we're recording, it has changed its name to something a little bit more sci-fi. Jesse, what is it changing itself to? Gemini, da, 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 sparkles. I think like, yeah, the astrology girlies are going to love it. I love the reband personally. <laughs> I think it's sexy. I think it's cute. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, as, as a Gemini, I agree. <laughs> True. Bard to me didn't really have the pizzazz that it needs to compete with the other players. Like it is more than just a name and a rebrand. <laughs> we'll, like, we'll get there, don't worry. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. I'm just like, you know, really hung up on the branding. I thought it was great. They have like the the gradient. It's it's real pretty. I, I'm clearly a visual designer here. Like, I was I going to say, you can you can take the design out of the person, <laughs> but not the person out of the design. True, absolutely. It is not strictly speaking just a reinvention of Bard. They've also taken away Duet. So it's it has become something new. Sarah, what defines Gemini in terms of its offering from Google? Google? What, what makes it distinctive from, say, the other big competitors like your chat GPT? Microsoft have brought out Copilot and I'm a Google Sheets user and I wanted to be able to, I'm not going to lie, auto-populate a lot of spreadsheets with some <laughs> stuff uh, that was not generated by myself. And so uh, I'm hoping that it will enable us to do things like that um, because that's what Copilot has really leaned into for Microsoft. And so there's a, a lot of different options are available, but we're still seeing what that rolls out to. So at the moment, for example, as you mentioned, it's taken over uh, Google Assistant. And so, you know, instead of saying, hey, Google, it, it'll be, hey, Gemini, maybe. But you won't be able to do that on iOS. So for Apple users, you'll have a different sort of interface. Yeah, so until we can all play with it, I can't give any details, but have you had a play with it yet, Jesse? Yeah, I was have it up on my thing now. The interface looks pretty similar to ChatGPT, which I thought was interesting. The thing that stood out to me was this idea that they're going to be able to put it at the top of the Google search thing. So there's going to be a, to a toggle at the top of an app that lets you switch from search to Gemini. Now, Google is entire existence has been based as a search product. So I think it's pretty interesting that they're kind of placing it up there as like their main offering. I mean, the the, the prices that I thought was interesting was like $20 a month as part of like their subscription thing. I'm pretty sure like ChatGPT, they're doing 20 bucks a month as well. So we're probably going to be deciding like, okay, who is our AI software? Like who are we putting, you know, our, our subscriptions to? If you're competing with OpenAI, Anthropic, like these guys have been absolute industry leaders so far. I think Gemini, right? now is a little bit slower, like a bit slower to ChatGPT4. I mean, this has, been a, this has been an AI race for the past 12 months. So it'll be interesting to see who kind of comes out on top. But the other element of it not really being iOS friendly is probably a bit interesting, whether that's going to be something to hold them back. I guess the real key thing here is that Google is one of those organisations that because they have such a sweet of services like your Gmails and Google Documents and Google Maps, you would assume the most valuable thing that its AI could do is to draw on each one of those services and create something of more value. Do, in terms of what has been proposed and what has been talked about, is there a sense that it can use its, and, and this, this can cut both ways, use what it knows about you and what you like to give you a better service? I think what we're seeing a shift towards, so the first era, if you like, of these tools have been AI for everybody, right? So you've got these large language models that are all the data in, all the data out. 
I think where the potential sits is this idea of personalized AI models. Um, that's something that we're exploring at Patient Notes is this idea of if you let the AI learn more about you specifically, can it give you better outcomes for what you're looking to see? The trade-off, and, and I've, from what I can glean from the current plans that they're releasing, I can't see where you can opt into, say, a personal model that then doesn't go into that big everyone model. So mm. what, what I'm curious to know is how do I turn off Google training on my data and then how do I let it only train you know, for my things on my data and what does that start to look like? Because I would love a customized model that knows how I write in my emails and how mm. many emoji I use, um, <laughs> but I don't necessarily want someone else to be able to write an email like Sarah Moran. I don't, I don't want that model to be available to others. I just want it to be available for me. And so I think that'll be the next horizon. I think, I hope that's where the conversation goes over the next 12 months. So I um, did trial Microsoft Copilot, but you had to buy the most expensive tier to be able to opt out of training data. Yeah. When I look at the same Google One plans, I can't see that available at all on at, at least on the on the website so far. So, you know, I I'm curious to see where that sort of moves to because I think we will see a shift as the conversation moves forward. I'm looking at the interface right now, Gemini's interface, and the first thing it says is your conversations are processed by human reviewers to improve the technologies powering Gemini. Don't enter anything you wouldn't want review or used. <laughs> so, like, clearly we're still in a phase of development where, yeah, there it, it is going to be used. So the, those biz business plan models you're mentioning, Sarah, I think that's going to be really interesting as to privacy and that kind of stuff. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And staying on the AI theme, interesting announcement out of uh, Meta, the owners of Facebook and Instagram, that they're going to label all fake AI images, Sarah. Yes. So interesting outcome <laughs> for Facebook to head down this, this avenue. And it feels like a, a PR statement that hasn't quite been backed up with much thought. But <laughs> You know, this, this is something that is obviously a concern to lots of people that I don't know, is this AI or not? And so Facebook's trying to get ahead of that by labeling images generated by other companies' AI tools. So being able to detect, detect those things and being able to say, look, this is, this is an AI fake is something that they've headed out with. But the technology, even they've conceded that it's not yet fully mature, that, you know, being able to, to do that and deliver on that is something that is yet to play out. In terms of what has been announced, yeah. they, like weigh up, the, <laughs> weigh up the pros and cons for me. What what is good and what what is missing? Okay, I get their intentionality. Like we've got fake news. People are seeing pictures that they think are real that aren't real, and all this kind of stuff. Like I understand the intentionality. I think it's completely um, un unach unachievable and I also don't know why they would think to be doing this at a large scale. So the thing that they have created with their generative AI stuff, like if you create an image using their software, it puts this little watermark that says imagined by their AI. So they're identifying that. The reality of where we are moving with generative maybe imagery or generative content, like the reality is there's so much content is going to be generated in the next year coming to the future. There's some there's predictions that like 70% like of the internet is going to be have generated content by 2030. So to me, it just seems completely impractical. Like if you're a business doing generative photography or something to sell your product or whatever you're doing, why do you need to claim that that is generated or, or is there benefit to that? I think the intention is so that people aren't getting misled with stuff like you know, relating to politics or um, you know, deep fake content and stuff. But then they're even saying that they're not able to do this this kind of um, AI 
flagging for anything that's audio or video, which is where like deep fake stuff is kind of like the main worry. But then you could also have just doctored video. So I don't like AI to me is more of a, t- a tool. It's more about the, the outcome that we're trying to protect against. Um, the also the element of like how you're actually going to detect. So there's been attempts for like AI detection detection software, but as much so there's just AI detection evading software. <laughs> so it's like a cat and mouse. As soon as one gets good, another one just gets better. So um, I don't really know what their purpose is. I think to me it seems as if they're trying to come out and be like, right, we've got fake news on on our platforms. How do we solve it? I don't think this is the solution. I think it's impractical and just also not really possible. Is there any, I say this advisor, is there, is there any upside to it? Yeah, well, I mean, like if you're looking at imagery in practice, I think generative AI is going to be such a helpful tool for so many businesses. I think we're going to be seeing it really embedded into business models that, I don't know, I don't really see the flip side except for <laughs> except for fake news. Like, I don't know. Do you have any opinions on this, Sarah? Like, Sarah? Me, it just seems impractical. I am sitting on so many opinions that I don't okay. even know where to start. So I imagine in part this is because of the election, the US election yeah, that's coming yeah. up uh, in the not too distant future and to get ahead of that. But why start now, Matter? Like, where have you been, you know, in terms of disinformation and misinformation? Meta has uh, sort of let that thrive for a long period of time. And so to only come down the line and say, well, we're going to tell you if something is generated by AI, it's a very technological approach to dealing with that. So I think being able to say, you know, this this is created by AI, you can go back to the tech and say, we can show you how this was taken technically created, but, you know, video editing or even, as you mentioned, Photoshop, right? If, if someone manually Photoshops something, mm. sure, that was not generated by AI. It was generated by a human, but it mm. is manipulated. Meta's oversight board has criticized the company for this policy because it, it is, it jars against the way they've done everything else. And so, um, it's, what are you doing? Why, why, why pick this lane? Um, it's, it's very, very confusing. And I had a really concerning conversation with someone the other day who was like, oh no, I can trust things on Facebook now because they're going to tell me if it's AI generated or not. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like that is, that is a really big consequence is that people think, well, Facebook will tell me if it's real or not. And that is not what they're doing. And I think that, uh, yep, yep. No, that's going to keep me up late at night for sure. (laughs) Um, I should say next week on the program, we will be doing a special deep dive into the future of AI. So if you want more of this conversation, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast and you will get it automatically delivered to you next week. And finally here on Download This Show, we're talking about gaming. Uh, Walt Disney has acquired a eye-watering $1.5 billion stake, just a stake, in the company behind the blockbuster game Fortnite that if you have children under the age of 15, you will have heard a lot about. Why Fortnite? Why Disney, uh, Jesse? I'm so excited by this. Oh my gosh. It, to me, it makes so much sense. Like Disney are sitting on IP, IP that they just want to farm out as we can see <laughs> through like, yeah, all of their cinema. I think they've just done every series they can as films. So like, right, let's get into games. No, to me, it makes so much sense, especially with something like Fortnite, which is specifically targeted more at younger players. Like 62% of their Fortnite players are between 18 to 24. I would say that the rest, like a lot are younger. And so Disney kind of has that. That, that attitude of, of these beautiful universes, these amazing multiverse, like they've just got so much rich IP. Let's expand that into game format. 
players are then able to, you know, inhabit these characters or interact with these characters. For anyone who's familiar with Fortnite, you know, you've got different skins, like you're able to kind of jump between all of this. Like, I think I think this is going to be so exciting when we blend like the Marvel world, the Star Wars, Pixar, everything like that. Disney's been on something of a buying spree over the last 15 years. Of course, in, in, the, in the last decade or so, they've acquired the Star Wars universe and uh, the Marvel universe and this gradual kind of acquisition. But this is interesting because it's it's an acquisition in the digital space, it's an acquisition in gaming. Now, certainly Disney obviously did have gaming assets before, but why is Epic so distinctive, uh, Sarah? So Epic own uh, one of the two largest games engines in the world. And so um, Unreal Engine is what powers a lot of games. Um, so when you go to make a game, you need a tool to make it with. And so there's Unreal uh, is is one of the two big ones and it's also the what Disney use for their for their 3D gaming graphics tools so you don't actually have to use it for games you can use it for other applications and it can be used in movies and things like that and so that that uh, overlap is something that literally no one else would come to the table with and so it is a strategic play to also be able to impact that product um so if Disney want to say do you reckon you could have a crack at making some tools for us? It is kind of almost a, a you know a bit of a play into tech for Disney, which is really exciting. But yes, you were talking about those those big worlds that Disney mm. like, and I think um, behind the scenes there has definitely been conversations that if you're pitching Disney, you need to come to them with a world, like you need a megaverse that they can play out into all of these different areas, um, and that's definitely what they've brought to the table here. Uh, Epic. Has, has been making some big plays generally. They've had to lay off staff. They've gone up against Apple. This this makes a lot of sense. That's right. They had a – actually, just explain that a little bit more because they they, they had a, quite a major court case with Google and Apple about the, their stores, yeah? Tim Sweeney is quite a character, so he's their founder. <laughs> and he, um, yeah, filed cases against both Google and Apple. Um, a lot of it centering around, you know, subscriptions and – uh, a lot of the stuff around revenue, um, which I think everyone then sort of got behind, but they they were not very successful. And so that has kind of had them with a couple of losses under their belt. You know, normally this company has been so far on top, but then they've had a couple of whacks and it's cost them money. And so this is, for them, I completely understand why they want the cash injection, but it's a really smart and strategic way to go and get it. I think one of the reasons this stood out to me is we've seen an interesting permutation happen in the in the streaming wars, where mm, obviously yeah. you've got you know Netflix and Disney Plus and Max in the US and a whole host of local ones here. But one of the I guess the the interesting edges of uh, innovation happening is that Netflix has moved into games. Yeah. So uh, and it's it's been a long time coming, and it's very tentative. There are certain Netflix games that you can have. Is there a sense that with Disney's heft of things like Disney Plus that they could use uh, Disney Plus or indeed use Epic's own assets to build something new that combines both universes. Is there any suggestion that that might be on the cards? I think it'd be epic. I mean, if you think about like a parent. <laughs> oh, see, the headline just writes itself. <laughs> if you're like a parent and you're paying for Disney Plus already um, and then we kind of look into Fortnite, like these, there's just this seamless kind of crossover in these worlds. Um, you know, you watch a kid play on an iPad and then watch a thing and then play the video game. Like, like it's seamless. It it really does feel seamless. So I think, yeah, you might be onto something there, Mark. I think you're seeing a business opportunity. 
pay me. Somebody just pay me. (laughs) (laughs) Disney cash. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think Disney has some, has some dollars to spend, mate. Yeah. Go on. I'm going to push back about that actually. If I can. Yeah. I think on the other hand, like the games industry is struggling at the moment. So there has been so much less cash. We've heard a lot about startups not getting um, as much capital. They've had down rounds and things like that over the last little while, but that has knocked on into the games industry. And so we're really seeing a lot of, um, you know, companies struggling to raise capital to keep games afloat. We've had a couple of instances of that happening in Australia. I think, um, you know, in this case, Epic has said we're spending more money than we earn. And this Mm. is a sustainability play for them. I think from a Disney perspective, I don't know so much that it is the, um, you know, the move into games as much as it might be a bit of a life life raft to help keep this game afloat until we work out how these models are going to play. So um, Apple have their subscription services as well. So if you think about all the mobile gaming, but they are struggling. They are trying to incentivize games companies to bring people to their platform. And it's all, you know, these business models start out, but they're crushing creativity. And people are trying to figure out what is the best way to move forward. And I think, I don't know, in some ways, this is a bit of a stall. Like, no one would want Fortnite to die, because what does that say to the rest of the games industry? So, I think we're in a bit of a holding pattern and I hope this generates something new, as you both say, but I'm I'm just putting on my weight and see how. Do we think more generally that um, streaming services will begin to become more holistic in terms of what they offer, that they'll won't just be movies and TV shows, that they'll also be uh, games and interactive entertainment as well, Jesse? Uh, I mean, we've been seeing example like attempts with like Netflix and all these kind of things. Um I don't know. I think they're just trying to figure out how to be different right now. Like, because we even talked about just the difference between paying for ChatGPT or paying for the other one or paying for this or paying for that. Like, the amount of subscriptions, honestly, that I get at, a month, at the end of the month, you really have to sit there and be like, where am I putting the cash? Like, which streamer is going to win out on top? So, having this kind of unique value prop and whether that is, is this going to be the one that gets us ahead of everything else? You're debating between like, what has the most, the, the best content. I think when we choose between our streamers, we're like, okay, like, like why, why do you choose the streamers that you choose, really? And it's like, well, sometimes it's just ease. Like Netflix, I think, is just the bread and butter. But then if you want really good quality stuff, you might go over to like, God, I don't know, who's ahead these days? Binge? Binge has some pretty good stuff. <laughs> I quite like Binge. I got HBO stuff. Um, yeah, so it is, you kind of kind of toss up, like, why do I have these different services? And, yeah, if, if, if games is the way in, uh, we'll probably have to see different behaviour from age groups as well. Like, I mean, I'm not sure what the young, like, I, I just assume younger people are more interested in games, whether, but may, I might be wrong. It might be... Well- and to, to go the flip side, I mean, yeah. I think what these companies, these now monoliths haven't worked out is how do they continue to fund creativity? And that yeah. is happening across screen, um, but also into games. So, you know, we're really struggling to see about the, so, so the way the games industry works is you raise money for a game, you release that game and then you get payback. You know, it is very similar to a movie in that way. Mm. And in the same way, movie studios are kind of like, oh, well, like we're not getting follow-on earnings when, you know, when when we get these blockbuster hits. The same thing is happening in games when they're, when they're distributing on these platforms. So I think that's the bit that hasn't been cracked. Like, you know, who's going to pay for ongoing creativity over the long term? And I think um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We are out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week, Sarah Moran, the co-founder of Patient Notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
And Jesse Hughes, creative technologist at Leonardo AI. Thanks so much, Jesse. Woohoo, I love being here. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Don't forget, next week on the show, we will be doing a deep dive into the future of AI. It'll be available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, both this show and all of your favourite ABC shows are available on ABC Listen. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.